Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure and, in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 9, season 1, and today I speak to historian, lawyer and author Andrea Hetherington about her work on deserters during the First World War. Her recent book looked at why people deserted from British forces when stationed in the geographic context of the United Kingdom. She spoke to me from her home in Leeds, Yorkshire. Hi Andrea, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in, in the Great War and in particular deserters? Well, I'm a, a writer and researcher living in Leeds. Uh, this is my second major book on the, the Great War. It's something I've always been interested in from my school days. Um, my family history is pretty tied up with the war in one form or another. I am from Hartlepool, though don't hold that against me. And uh, my great grandfather was a tunneler on the Western Front. So you grow up with all of that in your own personal history. And I'm largely interested in the, the social history of the war and its effect on daily life in, in the UK. Um, in terms of writing about deserters, as with most of my writing, it came from wanting my own curiosity satisfied, really. Whilst writing my previous book, British Widows of the First World War, still available from all good bookshops, I came across men who were defrauding widows out of their pensions. And to my surprise, many of them turned out to be deserters from the armed forces. And I just started to wonder how many of these men there were and how they existed in what was virtually a military state when they were on the run from the military. Now, my background is in criminal law. So although I'm a committed rule follower myself, I am fascinated by those who take a different approach. So um, I, I started to in investigate this a bit further and out of it came this book. So why why did you choose to write about deserters in Britain as opposed to deserters in France or other theatres of war? Well, because I feel like the the overseas deserters, the whole shot at dawn things become a little bit overdone, frankly. Um, and nobody's ever written about deserters in this country on the home front. It's not been done. Nobody's done it. Nobody's researched it. And I, I like to write original stuff, not not derivative stuff or retell a story that's been told lots of times before. Um, so that's why I started to, to look into that. And the things that I found surprised me and interested me. And I thought, no, there there is a, a, a really good book out of this. There are lots of great stories here and a lot of interesting stuff that I didn't know. Um, and I, I think that it, it really it, it gives a whole different perspective to the, the question of, of desertion because the only deserters that are spoken about are the people that were shot at dawn. But then the general idea is that, well, they were all pardoned because they were all suffering from shell shock. And anybody else that didn't do their bit was obviously a conscientious objector and they went to jail anyway. And none of this is strictly true. Um, and a lot of, of the gen more general assumptions about, about the war and the conduct of the war and the attitude of people to the war um, is kind of contradicted when you start to look at, at home front deserters. So what was the scale of desertion in the United Kingdom during the war? Well... Looking at the available statistics on the home front, 
there were 82,000, nearly 82,500 court martials for desertion and being absent without leave on the home front. Now, that's the official end of, of the war, which, as we know, isn't until March 1920. But the thing is, we'll never, ever know the definitive figure. Now, the reason for that is because those statistics only include people that were court martialed. So that's only the men that were caught and were considered to need a more severe punishment than their commanding officer can supply. Because the commanding officer had summary powers of punishment up to 28 days detention. So it was only if it was felt that you were worth more than that, that you'd even go to a court martial. Now, the, the, a better way of, of tracking down the scale is if you look at the Police Gazette. Because once you deserted, after 21 days, the army would declare you to be a deserter and they would then pass your details to the Police Gazette for publication. It's the equivalent of the Police National Computer now, I guess. And it would include your details and things like your basic physical appearance, basically the information that was on your enlistment form and where you enlisted, hoping the police could pick you up. So the Gazette would print the names of people and during the war, they carried a thousand names a week of men who were wanted for absence desertion. Now, that's a significant difference, as anybody that can count a little bit <laughs> can say, between the difference between that figure and those who faced court martial for the offences. Now, the number of men that were struck off the strength of the army for desertion during the war, that means they were gone 21 days or more is nearly 147,000. And again, that only includes people that were missing for 21 days. If you were missing for a shorter period, because you could desert and be missing five minutes if it was to get away with that, with doing something you didn't want to do, like jumping on the next train to the front, you could nip out for 10 minutes and come back. And if they'd gone, that was desertion. And once conscription came in, the Police Gazette was now carrying an extra thousand names a week for men who didn't answer their call at papers. So there is this narrative that everyone was doing their bit and that men flocked to the recruiting stations unless they were conscientious objectors. But this is simply not true. Conscription in its first incarnation comes in in January 1916. By March 1916, over 57,000 men have failed to answer their call at papers. So if people do research their own family history on the question, what did your great grandfather do in the Great War? The answer might actually surprise them. So if I deserted in the United Kingdom, what were the penalties for me if I was caught? Uh, and how would that differ, for instance, if I deserted in France or another combat zone? Well, you're right to make the distinction between a combat zone and the home front, though theoretically... Whilst the country was on a war footing, the death penalty existed for deserters, whether they'd walked away from a trench in France or from a parade ground in Aldershot, because the designation of being on active service would apply to both when the country was at war. In practice, however, the death penalty wasn't imposed for desertions at home. For deserters on the home front, they were at risk of imprisonment, but the maximum that they could get would be two years mostly because they would appear before a district court martial and that was the maximum punishment that that tribunal could award. But this was very rarely imposed and much many men, most men, were given much shorter sentences, periods of military detention, because it's obviously important to recycle manpower as quickly as possible rather than have people languishing in prisons when they could be fighting at the front. So even those sentences that they did get were often ended quite 
quite quickly and they were returned uh, to the ranks. Having said that, there were actually men who were arrested in Britain for desertion, who were then transported back to France or Belgium, court-martialed and executed. And these were men who'd overstayed their leave, men who deserted on the front line and made their own way back, or in two cases, men who ran off from their battalion as it was waiting in the station in London to go to the front. Now, I've, I've found 14 men from the shot at dawn lists that fit this description of being home front deserters, essentially. For example, um, Lance Corporal Peter Sand, the Royal Irish Rifles, he took leave for four months rather than the four days on his leave pass, was arrested at home in Belfast, transported to France, court-martialed and executed. Now, at the other end of the punishment scale, many, many men were not even court-martialed, but were punished by being confined to barracks. So punishments could be very light. Offences of desertion were very often downgraded to absence without leave so that these lighter punishments could be imposed without the need to go before a court-martial. So we will never know the precise number of people who were, were guilty of desertion or, or absence without leave. And did you find when you were looking at the sort of these, these statistics, do punishments get harsher as the war go, goes on or do they get more lenient? Is there a sort of a pattern we can actually detect? No, there probably isn't because of the fact that we don't, we just don't know for thousands and thousands of men. Um, the only way we, we find out, it seems to me, is by just happening upon their service records and finding that they were, they were punished in this, this way. Because I don't think records were kept um, at a statistical level of those punishments. The records seem to be just for court-martials. So um, I, I don't think there is necessarily... Um, there were occasional announcements that they were going to crack down on things. Um, 1915, there was a lot of concern about men overstaying their leave and it was announced that there, there would have to be a crackdown um, and a few more people were shot, I think, um, in, in those subsequent months. But it didn't really have much of an effect on, on the figures, it, it seems to me. 1915 was probably the worst year of the whole war in terms of the numbers of people deserting. Um, so I don't think there is necessarily a, a discernible trend. And as I say, it's... If you did do that, you would have to just look at the court-martial punishments, and that really doesn't tell us anywhere near the whole story. Um, so I'm not really sure. Knowing that, knowing that there's all these many thousands of hidden men, I'm not sure that it would be fair necessarily to extrapolate any conclusion from just the court-martial records. I mean, at one stage in 1915, they did bring in the suspended sentences provisions. So... This is when you start to see death penalties imposed, but those being suspended um, because they, they brought in those provisions. But that was only for offences committed abroad. So if you were on the home front and you ran off from your unit, um, you couldn't have a suspended sentence. That was only for offences committed abroad. Though, However, those men that I've talked about who were shot after overstaying their leave, for example, they would, in my opinion, have been suitable for a suspended sentence. And some of them undoubtedly did get suspended sentences. Not all of the people that fit those criteria overstayed their leave from the front, uh, made their own way back from the front or ran off from their units while they were waiting to go to the front. Nowhere near all of those men received a death sentence at all. Um, and again, 
as we know, because the only records that have been properly kept um, as court-martial files are the death penalty cases, it's, it's very difficult to look and see why certain men were shot and other men weren't. So what motivated men to desert uh, from home? Have you got any really good personal stories that you could share with us? Well, the reasons for desertion was varied as the reasons for joining up in the first place. Family problems, children's illnesses, immaturity, being unfit to serve yourself in the first place, wanting to earn some more money elsewhere, bullying, gambling debts in their unit, poor conditions in training camps. Anything that upset their relationship with the army could see them walking away. For example, lots of Durham miners disappeared in 1914 from their training camp at Halton Park in Buckinghamshire. Um, they complained that the accommodation was inadequate and they were not being fed and that disease was rampant in the, the camp. Uh, lots of them just left rather than deal with that in, in any way. Um, some of them joined other units and some of them didn't. Um, so they were basically using the tactics that they, they would use at home, which basically withdrawing their labour if things didn't didn't suit them. Um, so that kind of, of response to, to a problem, it seems to me, was was rampant. I mean, many civilians struggled to come to terms with army discipline, and when they couldn't get leave to deal with a problem at home, they just left. Uh, this includes men who left to get married. <laughs> James Duncan, for example, left to get married, was caught before the ceremony, but was sportingly allowed to marry his sweetheart at Kakaldi Police Station. Uh, there were no holidays, sick days or mental health days in the uh, First World War British Army. So when men needed time off, as as they would do, they just left. The figures always showed a spike in January as men failed to return home after being failed to return from home after being lucky enough to get some leave at Christmas. And there are some very tragic cases. Um, a man called Thomas Rule, he was a regular soldier from the Middlesex Regiment, and he deserted because he discovered that his 13-year-old daughter was gravely ill. And he asked for permission to be able to go home and see her, and that was refused. So he just went anyway. Unfortunately, she died by the time he got home, and he was then refused permission from his commanding officer to, to stay and attend the funeral. So he was arrested, he was placed before the court, and the most the magistrates were prepared to do for him was to allow him under police escort to go and see his his daughter's body in the funeral home before he was he was taken back to the the barracks the thing to say is this is rarely about cowardice heroes were just as likely to make themselves scarce as any other soldier when it suited them william mariner won the victoria cross for his bravery with the king's royal rifle corps in france may 1915 but he also appeared before the court as a deserter he got his medal in august 1915 had got leave to do that but he overstayed his leave and he was still in the UK by October when he was arrested. Now, he told the court that he'd been going around the country doing some recruiting with Jack Johnson, heavyweight champion of the world. How true that is, I don't know, but they must have made a rare double act because Marion was only five foot four tall. A huge numbers of men have got entries on their conduct records for absence or desertion. And the court-martial statistics only tell part of the story. I think absenteeism has got a long and distinguished history amongst the British workmen. And just because they were now in uniform, it didn't mean that behaviour would, would automatically stop. Other odd things I had, a man who didn't go back because he'd lost his overcoat and was scared he would get into trouble. Somebody else who didn't like the bad language he heard in barracks. And then one man who 
decided that he needed the time to perfect his invention, which was something to do with electrical food cultivation that would transform the nation's food supply. And he was nearly finished and he just needed a little bit more time. The magistrate sent him back and told him to tell the military all about it. And I don't think we've ever heard of that invention, so it may still be in progress somewhere. And did you find um, that, that many female service personnel deserted? Um, statistics, I haven't been able to come up, but I have found some, yes, because women could be deserters too. From 1917, with the formation of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, women could be deserters. They were treated a little differently to male deserters. They were not taken to court, mostly, largely because the government didn't want them to have access to any of the benefits soldiers had. So they were treated differently to soldiers in a lot of different ways. Um, but this was, was one of the ways. So when they were arrested, the police would just tell them to go back to their units. And it was only if they steadfastly refused to do so that they were taken before a court, where what would happen, well, they would be fined and then sent back to their units. But women did desert for a range of reasons. But the ones I found most regularly are that they just didn't like being in the army. It wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Um, or they wanted to get jobs in munitions factories where there was better pay and a bit more freedom. As with male deserters, there's a range of motivations. Uh, but I have found an example of two nice middle class young ladies from Ghoul who deserted in order to bring to wider attention the poor conditions the wax were having to put up with in their group. They're being housed in filthy hovels in Sheffield and then in a former workhouse, I think, in Gateshead, where they were catching things from the bedding and it was all very unpleasant. So when the police offered them the chance to go back, they refused because they wanted that court appearance. So it would then be reported in the newspapers, which it was. They pleaded not guilty to desertion and they were actually acquitted of desertion by the, the magistrates. I think it didn't hurt that their dad was quite high up or had been quite high up in Ghoul District Council, which is always, always helpful. Um, but yes, they were actually acquitted. But as with men, there's a range of, of motivations. Now, how did the um, authorities actually try and prevent service personnel from deserting in the first place? Well, historically, the army's biggest weapon against deserters was not the threat of the death penalty, but the fact that if you deserted, your previous service would be wiped out. So men signed up as soldiers, as we know, before the First World War for lengthy periods of time, seven years, 12 years, even after the introduction of what was laughingly called short service. So if you're five years into your service term, your lengthy service term, you're not going to want to take the risk of losing that accrued time by walking away, because when you're caught, your clock starts again and you'd have the full service term to do. And I think this is one of the reasons why men were so keen to be found guilty of, desert, of not of desertion, but of absence. Because if you were convicted of absence without leave, that didn't apply. Your previous service wasn't wiped out. Now, that doesn't matter, obviously, if you just signed up for the duration. So that doesn't matter because you've signed up for the duration of the war. You've not signed up for, for a seven or 12 year term or whatever it happens to be. You've signed up for the duration. So that doesn't, doesn't matter. The other tactic historically the army had was attempting to instill an esprit de corps, one way of combating it, trying to strengthen the links between a man and his unit, teaching recruits the glorious regimental history and making them proud of that. 
a lot of the reforms to the army in the early 20th century were specifically designed to combat desertion. So shorter sign-up periods, more facilities for soldiers in barracks, education, things like that. But all of that goes out the window, really, when you're dealing with men who are accustomed to civilian life, have every intention of returning to it as quickly as possible, and have only signed up for the duration of the war. All of those traditional methods are far less effective because... What do you care about the history of your regiment? You have no connection to it, for the most part, or your battalion. You've been dumped somewhere, for the most part. Um, you didn't necessarily choose that unit. So you, it doesn't really work in the same way. Um, having said that all of that is much less effective, having said that, the Canadian Expeditionary Force, based on camps around Salisbury Plain, found that their significant problem with absence and desertion was lessened somewhat once they made alcohol available in the previously dry camp canteens, because that meant that men were not then going off hunting in the towns and villages around Salisbury Plain, but were staying at home and getting drunk instead. But to be honest, there wasn't a great deal they could do if a man was desperate enough to run off. Robert Graves famously wrote about the Welshmen that he was in charge of uh, on the home front who were always disappearing from camp. So he took steps to make sure that there was more effective guards, that all the entrances were guarded properly. And it made absolutely no difference whatsoever, because what he then discovered was that so determined were they to get home and tend their crops or their allotments or whatever they were doing, that they were escaping through a sewer. So it didn't matter how many guards he put on the gate because they weren't going out the gate. Um, I mean, during the war, one of the, the cruelest tricks to try and keep men in line was the stoppage of any allowances to their families once they deserted. So not only is your army pay stopped, but any separation allowance that your wife's getting and any children's allowances that you're getting, those are stopped. Um, that's a clear attempt to try and starve deserters or fam the deserters' families anyway back to the ranks. But of course, this would only work if the man had any conscience about this stuff in the first place, which some of them frankly did not. And it also didn't matter if they'd some of them had deserted in order to do better paid work than soldiering somewhere else. If you've got a job in a munitions factory under a different name, then you're looking after your family very nicely. Thank you very much. A lot more than the separation allowance your wife's had to scrape by on while she were away. So those were sort of the tactics that they, they did use. Um, but as I say, it, it's debatable whether any of them really were, were going to be effective in, in stopping people walking off. So if you've if I've walked off, mm. how effective were the um, authorities of actually capturing people who had deserted? Well, again, this is very difficult to assess. There was a net loss to the British and Dominion forces of more than 70,000 men to desertion during the Great War. So you might say they were not very good at it at all. So that's the difference between the number of people who deserted and the, the number of people who returned from desertion. because They kept statistics of that as well. Um, the reason that we'll never know is because some men deserted, but they then joined up again. Um, and the West Front Association has got Project Alias looking at, at pension cards and, and trying to see in records and trying to see if you can track some of these men down. Um, some men just went and joined other units. And whereas there's no way you'd get away with that now, those times it was very easy to do that. It was so difficult to track people down, especially in the first years of the war. There was very little military police presence in the UK when war broke out. There were only 400 red caps in the whole country at that stage. And once the man had deserted, really all you could do was publish his details in the Police Gazette. 
and maybe make some inquiries with his family and that would be about it. As it was pretty much the job of the civilian police to track down deserters. Um, the civilian police did get pretty fed up with this, at least at chief constable level. In July 1915, the chief constable of Manchester is complaining to the war office that he's getting 200 inquiries a day from the army about men missing either from the Manchester area or in the Manchester area. Now, the officers on the street might have been a little more keen on deserters because whenever they took a deserter to court, they would due a reward. But with no photographic ID that we're so used to now, much less bureaucracy, it must have been comparatively easy to stay on the run because you didn't have to produce your birth certificates to join up or anything like that. People would just take your details on your word, essentially. Uh, and it, in addition, whenever any kind of pass or document was generated by the authorities to allow someone to demonstrate their exemption from service, there were forgers waiting in the wings to produce fake versions. So even after conscription came in, it was still a difficult job to track men down because men would pay for fake exemption certificates or you know, on work of national importance, armbands or things like that. The civilian police would conduct raids after conscription came in to try and catch people who deserted and those who hadn't answered their call up. Entertainment venues in large towns and cities were raided in the autumn of 1916 and all men that they found there of military age were asked to prove they were legitimately at large and not missing from camp somewhere. But I think these raids were really more publicity stunts than effective trawls for missing men because the numbers of men in these raids who were actually found to be deserters were very few in relation to the number of men spoken to, questioned, asked to produce their documents. And I think the intention was to frighten those that were on the run into thinking they were going to be rounded up and encouraging them to hand themselves in, because frankly, there was very little they could do to uh, to find these men. I think if you were determined to stay away, I don't think you would have had much difficulty. And were there areas of the United Kingdom and um, at that time where people could disappear and would be actively helped by the civilian population. I'm partly thinking about Ireland, which was almost in a state of civil war between 1916 and 18. Yes. Yes. A lot of people went off to Ireland because, of course, conscription was never applied in Ireland. And some of them went off before they ever got their call up papers. So as soon as conscription was was rumoured, people were going off to Ireland um, and then once it came in, people were going off to Ireland um, or further afield. Irishmen themselves were going off to America just in case conscription came in. Um, there was a famous incident called the Saxonia incident in Liverpool um, where the crew of that ship refused to sail because the passengers were mostly fit looking young Irishmen of military age and they refused to sail because they weren't prepared to let them escape their military obligations. But as I say, it was never applied in Ireland itself. Um, and men did go across there. And then late in the war, they later in the war, they had, um, they had a crackdown in Ireland. They decided that if they were ever going to introduce conscription in Ireland or encourage the recruiting in Ireland, they would firstly have to be shown to have been taking steps to find and get all these Englishmen that were in Ireland who should have been fighting rather than the Irishmen. So they, they did make a concerted effort to do that. There was a lot of anti-Semitism around that, you know, reports in the war efforts and in the press that these people were almost completely Jewish um, and that they were spending their time on the race course uh, and all this kind of stuff. Um, 
So, yeah, there were people in in Ireland and they did make attempts to get them back. And it, interestingly, once they started to tighten the net in Ireland, there were floods of men going the other way back to England where they felt that the heat wouldn't be on in quite the same way. <laughs> so there were, there were a few going going the other way later on in the war as well. Um, but you didn't have to go that far. You didn't have to go as far as, as Ireland. You could just go home, maybe. A lot of people went home. Um, there are tales of people in attics and behind false cupboards. Um, for lengthier stays, though, you probably needed a bit more of a network. Conscientious objectors seem to have a bit of an underground railroad going on. Um, I'll talk about that a little bit in the book, but Cyril Pierce's book uh, that's recently come out about conscientious objectors, communities of resistance, that's called, most specifically about conscientious objectors, um, has a, a good chapter about them being on the run. Um, all kinds of places from a cave under a cycle shop in Bristol to campgrounds run by the Clarion Club, all that, that kind of thing for conscientious objectors. Um, but some towns and cities were renowned as bolt holes for deserters. The tiny village of Cowling in North Yorkshire uh, was renowned as being somewhere, it was called by the, the press around here in Yorkshire, the deserters village for by the number of men that were missing there comparative to the uh, the actual population. Um, and this was because these communities would find it really hard to operate without manpower. It's isolated communities, everything comes in by a cart. There's farm work to do, there's mills there that, that need manpower. Uh, and the community would find it very difficult to survive if all able-bodied men were off in uniform. So I think that there were definitely pockets. There's also, a, a, you know, anti-establishment feelings in a lot of places. Sheffield was was very anti-establishment. The military police were not established in Sheffield until 1917. Um, but Sheffield also was one of the place deserters would flock because there was a lot of munitions work there, which was very well paid um, and, and very much desired by, by deserters on the whole. So you had this this perfect storm, really, of no military police, a lot of work for deserters and a local population who were not too keen on the police generally. And the military police knew that if they or the normal police, that if they arrested a deserter in Sheffield, that there was a good chance that the police, the local population would not be on their side and the man may well escape later on or, or the arrest may well be obstructed. So there was a lot of that kind of thing going on across the whole of the United Kingdom, including Ireland. So what happens to people after the war who are technically still in a state of desertion? Well, they kind of forget about them unofficially. Officially, the authorities continue to shout and stamp their feet and say that there will be no deserters amnesty. A lot of MPs and, in fact, John Bull magazine called for a deserters amnesty. Um, but they'd had they'd given deserters who were missing at the beginning of the war. People had already legged it from the regular army and navy. They gave them an amnesty for a couple of months for the beginning of the war. But they were determined that that was not going to be repeated. Um, and they continued to say that, no, nobody's getting an amnesty. I think partly I think that there's a twofold reason for that. I think partly because they'd shot people for it. Um, 
it's going to really undermine their position there if as soon as the war is at an end, they say, oh, it's all right now. It's all right now. You can do what you like. It would severely undermine their plans uh, for demobilization, because if you thought, well, if I desert now, I'm not going to get punished. Were you really going to wait another three months or however long it took them to get rid of you? I don't think he would. So it would severely undermine their, their plans for that. Um, and also, there were still people imprisoned for it, of course, and people that had got very significant sentences of penal servitude um, and had been in prison in France and Belgium would transport, some of them were transported home to serve their sentences in other prisons, Portland, for example. And if you declared an amnesty, what are you going to do about those people who you thought had committed such a heinous crime that they could get a 15 year sentence? What, we, what are you going to do with those people if you now declare an amnesty? So you can see why they didn't. But really, they just sort of quietly forgot about them unless they deliberately presented themselves. And the army got less and less effective at actually turning up at magistrates' courts to collect people or to give evidence in the first place to prove that a man was a deserter. And sometimes people got through the net in that way because the magistrates would initially adjourn a case and keep a man in custody for a few days or a week for the army to come. But they wouldn't do that indefinitely. If the army weren't turning up, they were sort of thinking, well, if the army's not bothered, why are we? And they were just releasing them. So that started to happen a lot more on the home front as well. Um, so, yeah, they just sort of forgot about them. And they only really came up if, as some of them did, if men then tried to apply for the benefits that were due a demobilised soldier, that they were not entitled to because they weren't demobilised. They were um, and sometimes people would give themselves away in, in that regard. Uh, so the out-of-work benefit, for example, that was due to demobilised soldiers, some deserters tried to get hold of that and then found themselves in trouble for desertion as well, rather than in receipt of that. And when people applied for their medals, you could apply for your medals and you would get a letter back saying, um, are you not still in a state of desertion? Because that's quite serious. So you can either give yourself up and see what happens or, you know, you might get arrested. But you can't have your medals unless you give yourself up. But really, a lot of the time what would happen was they would say, well, I deserted and, and I'm here now. Can I have my medals, please? And they would then have to decide whether it was worth punishing them. And for the most part, it was not. Um, so that really, it all kind of just dwindled out without any great announcement. The men that were in prison, how they dealt with that was they reviewed all of their sentences. So they spent a good long while reviewing sentences and reducing sentences or releasing people straight away after that review. So that quiet, again, quietly got rid of that problem for them um, of, of the length of the people who were serving lengthy sentences. So it was all kind of done on, on the quiet, really. And my final question, Andrea, is where can people get your book from? Available from all good bookshops, I'm sure. Um, Pen and Sword, my publishers, I have it on their website. Um, it will be available in all the usual places and I think it's available as an e-book as well so yes book early I think I think the, 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 the message there is go out and get it it is on that bombshell I must say thank you very much for your time no problem anytime <laughs>